When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, unless I am actually a northern rockhopper penguin. In which case, I'm still your host, Fernanda Prates, in the sense that these are my official name and my official job, but I'm also not your host, Fernanda Prates, in the sense that I'm not a person. I'm a northern rockhopper penguin, which is a bit of an inconvenience in the sense that the state of being a northern rockhopper penguin does directly clash with the state required to write intros and prepare scripts and generally fulfill arbitrary social contracts like the one that proposes I offer intellectual labor in exchange for financial compensation. But it's also kind of convenient in the sense that I get to hop around with my cute little feet and rock these colorful eyebrow feathers that make me look permanently angry and never worry about brushing my teeth because I don't have any teeth. I mean, sure, using the power of words to form human connections that transcend geographical limits sounds cool and all, but like, so does just hanging out on big rocks and swimming around with my cute little flippers and using my cute little round belly to slide across scenic icy landscapes. I mean, I suppose having opposable thumbs and highly complex language systems is nice, but so is never having to fill out tax forms or grapple with the decision to approach acquaintances during encounters in public spaces or hear about diets that aren't really diets except for all the ways in which they are exactly like diets. So is being waterproof and having a fun little beak. Sure, there's the whole endangered species problem, but at this point, frankly, where isn't there a whole endangered species problem? At least the demise of the northern rockhopper penguins doesn't involve watching in disbelief as some of our peers act in direct defiance of all the ways in which we have advanced our survival mechanisms just because some penguin asshole doesn't mind seeing dumb shit on penguin TV in exchange for stupid penguin money or being stuck in a feather-breaking system that involves a small group of penguins hoarding all of the penguin resources and making the other penguins feel like shit because the hoarding penguins want them to feel like their inability to reach the resources that are being held literally beyond their reach is some kind of personal penguin failure, or despairing as fellow penguins dump a bunch of shit on the water and the air and everywhere else, even though all the ensuing penguin money, which is an arbitrary concept created and sustained by none other than the penguins themselves, by the way, will be no good when all the penguins are fucking dead. But in any case, no need to worry about any of that now. I mean, maybe there's some need to worry on account of the whole everything being fucked up and the end being nothing. But I mean, about the penguin thing, because I'm clearly not a penguin. And while that means I am still burdened with the weight of making my own daily fashion choices rather than going about life with the sharpest of built-in outfits, it also means I get to be here today, communicating with you all through human words, not loud mating calls, which is less fun, but more effective. And perhaps more importantly to the purposes of this particular episode, it means I get to communicate in human language with fellow humans who still aren't as cool as penguins because no one is, but who are actually pretty okay considering the inherent limitations of their species. 
Today, that human is Tim Bissell. Tim is an editor at bladyobble.com and the author of some of my favorite long-form features in MMA. And I'm not just saying that because I know and like Tim, even though I do, because it's literally impossible not to like Tim. Seriously, just try it. See, you can't. I told you it was impossible. I'm sure being awesome helps, but it's Tim's background in research, attention to detail, and incredibly human approach that, in my opinion, make his pieces outstanding. We'll talk about some of those today, as well as a bunch of other stuff, because that's what we do on this show, and my guests are helpless against my prying. Anyway, here's our chat. Enjoy it, or don't just remember that penguins are very, very cute. Before anything else, I think we need to acknowledge how special of an occasion today's episode is, how blessed we, my dear listeners, are for the presence of this particular guest. It's not an honor bestowed upon just anyone. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Oh, dear. Oh, my God. That's quite, that's quite the intro. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I would expect a little more of a reaction to that, yeah. but that's okay. You warm up to me. <laughs> I um, guess I wanted to talk to you about your career, your MMA life, uh, all mm -hmm. the things that had to go terribly wrong for you to <laughs> end up in this particular predicament that is MMA. Um, so let's go back to the beginning, I guess. What was your first sort of introduction? What got you into MMA? As far as like following MMA itself, mm. this may sound strange, but uh, it's just been, it's, I basically have like a fascination and attraction to violence. Okay. And this for the longest time, if, if it's, if it's something punk or subculture, mm. I've been really drawn to it. And the reason for that is uh, people who have a similar kind of personality to me uh, have the same sort of thing where things which scare me or scare us mm. are things we want to look further into and mm -hmm. research and study and become more comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And then the idea or the theory is that once you do that, once you understand something more, it becomes less frightening. Mm -hmm. And I would say I'm a pretty big pacifist. I'm pretty chill. And the idea of Can't violence confirm. happening to me is like really quite terrifying. Mm -hmm. So when I first encountered like people signing up to like really hurt each other, I was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is wild stuff, man. Like I kind of grew up in a, in a very s small town in England where mm -hmm. like, boy culture was like who's the toughest who's the hardest mm -hmm. who like can win all these fights and and i was kind of like a, a big imposing looking kid but i last thing i want to do is fight people mm -hmm. so i kind of maintained an aura like to try and like make myself look tough mm -hmm. in a way where i wouldn't hopefully have to have any of those fights yeah so fighting and, and violence like that has always been something where i've really tried to avoid Mm -hmm. but at the same time find it very interesting mm -hmm. and other interests like this also extends to an interest in crime and military history other mm -hmm. things i've written about a lot and so yeah that's how mma first uh, piqued my interest specifically through the the first ultimate fighter season this is probably the first time i really absorbed uh, a lot of mma and and the ufc obviously and and from then i was i was watching pretty avidly mm -hmm. but it wasn't until like Maybe a decade later, I took steps to actually write about the sport. Yeah, so how did that... First of all, like you said, it's, it, knowing you uh, in person, like you're just such a chill vibe person. Like you just really transmit this very like peaceful vibe. So it's really like funny to hear like how I'm attracted to like violence. <laughs> and absolutely understandable too, because I'm also, despite having an experience, an expensive personality, some would say, uh, very like peaceful in real life, and at the same time, very much attracted to that kind of stuff and crime and 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 you know other morally mm -hmm. reprehensible things. Uh, but professionally, though, how did that? How did you first like, you know, start making your path uh, in MMA? Well, it started when I was like I spent a big chunk of my professional adult life working in the TV industry here in mm -hmm. Canada. 
And I've worked all manners of like jobs and roles and various kind of like documentaries and TV shows. And my, my dream, like since being a little kid was to be a storyteller of some kind. Mm. And I latched onto TV early on wanting to be involved in like history and nature documentaries and things like that. And I was able to realize that like dream Mm -hmm. around 2010. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty busy. I worked on a lot of things, a lot of really terrible shows too, (laughs) but I definitely got a good experience doing all these different roles and writing a little bit. Writing Mm -hmm. was always my goal I wanted to get to. So I did write on some shows, but never enough to like get a credit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the more I progressed in that world, the more I realized how much I didn't like it. Okay. And, uh, during one particular job, I was working on a real estate show. Okay. And that sounds like my personal nightmare. Oh, it was awful. (laughs) And this real estate show was, it was so fake. Like Mm. everything there, the houses, the home buyers, the everyone was, it was fake completely. And it was supposed to be a reality show, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was supposed to be like real couples looking for affordable housing around Uh Toronto Mm -hmm. because this is such a horrible housing market. Yeah. But we were hiring actors to play these people. These were houses which weren't on the market. We were lying about how much the houses cost. So it was Mm, really a kind of like shitty show and not a very fun experience. Mm -hmm. And for that show, I actually wrote the the kind of this the script which would be the the format the formula for all the episodes mm-hmm. like it's kind of like painting by numbers this kind of writing which is not something i found very fun and i discovered like like afterwards i started doing it yes. and working on this script saying like this is when the characters introduced blah 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 mm. and having so many different people yeah. like above you coming in and saying no put this here put this there Ugh. and it really became just i was I was just a dude building like a Lego t- tower, exactly how like five more senior people wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And it was around then where I was like, you know, the the amount of work it's going to take to be the person who gets to write in this medium and it's just theirs and it goes out as I intended. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that's attainable. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking about like, how can I like embrace writing in a way where I get to produce pieces rapidly mm-hmm. and to a standard I, I like and write about things mm-hmm. I enjoy. And um, around that time, this was, I think, 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, really, I was watching a lot of UFC, a lot of other MMA, and I was reading Bloody Elbow. That was my prime source of, uh, of combat sports content. Yeah. And I just loved the the vibe of that site. I love the, the kind of the original investigations, mm-hmm. the, the long forms on there. I love the personalities and, and the videos, which would accompany. And if people are unfamiliar, a lot of the, that content, which I liked on bloody elbow was a lot of like people who didn't really give a shit about being popular. Mm-hmm. People who were kind of into that subculture, subversive punk kind of aspect to mm-hmm. MMA. And so I was really attracted to that site and uh, to the start of the content I saw there. And I started thinking, like, you know what? Like, I bet I could write for this site Mm. if I tried. Because the whole decade before that, I was, like, hustling in this TV world, trying to convince TV producers to let me work on these big million-dollar projects and stuff and and doing free work here and and favors here and just all this kind of hustle. Mm -hmm. So the idea of, like getting onto a blog seemed kind of like a piece of cake compared to what I've been through. Mm -hmm. And the reward seemed a lot more entertaining to me. Yeah. Certainly it wouldn't be as financially rewarding at at that stage in my career, but I was just looking for something I enjoyed and I was hoping to do something on the side, Mm -hmm. like just looking for a little hobby to do to kind of like develop as a writer and just to, to get that feeling of, of putting out work and, and, seeing what it's like as opposed to doing a tiny little thing on a TV show, which comes out like a year later and you can't really see your, yeah. your fingerprint on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I messaged um, Nate Wilcox, who's mm-hmm. one of the founders and, and the lead guy still today. 
at Bloody Elbow, and I was like, this is who I am, this is what I do, this is what I'd like to do. And I pitched him um, a story, and that story was an interview with uh, Marlon Sims, mm. who was on a season of Tough, yeah. and is one of the more bizarre characters that come through that show, mm-hmm. and someone who had always fascinated me, yeah. purely because of the, the brawl he had in the house with, I think his name was Noah. And I just wanted to talk to that guy and write about it. Mm-hmm. So Nate gave me what I've since learned is the standard uh, reply where it's like, okay, well, sign up on SB Nation, which is the the hub where mm-hmm. Bloody Elbow, MMA Fighting, MMA Mania, those sites yeah. belong to. And, you know, post a, a fan post. Um, we'll see if we like it and we'll go from there. So I did that. Yeah. And I've also since learned that not everyone takes up that option. Mm-hmm. So I wrote my piece and um, Nate liked it enough that he ran it on the, the main site mm-hmm. outside of the, the little forum area where those mm-hmm. fan posts go. And then I just kept going back to him saying, I want to do this. I want to do that. And eventually he kind of got frustrated at me and said like, well, you just want to be a staff writer. <laughs> like, you're already like, doing all this stuff. Like might as well. Yeah. So I said, okay. And I, I committed to a very, um, a very small workload. I think it mm-hmm. was like, maybe three articles a month or something like that. Yeah. While still being very busy on the TV side. and Oh, so you're still my, doing both. Yeah. And uh, in fact, the TV side got more intense at that time mm-hmm. than any other time in my career. I was working on a, a lot of shows and a lot of the best mm-hmm. ones I'd ever worked on came about then. Ugh. But as I was doing more in TV and a little in MMA writing, mm-hmm. just my enjoyment for the MMA writing was peaking. Yeah. And my enjoyment with the TV work was like falling off. Yeah. And eventually after a few years, I got to a point where I was like, I like every year I basically tried negotiating to get a little bit more pay and do a little mm-hmm. bit more, get a little more responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And eventually I got to a point where it was like, I think I can pitch Nate on like, I can offer all this. And this mm-hmm. is what I want for it. And if I get that, I think I can maybe walk away from TV mm-hmm. and not have to worry about like what I found so annoying about that industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nate said yes. And I became like a very heavily involved staff writer from then on. I was writing lots of articles and mm-hmm. and getting involved in lots of things. Yeah. And then at the towards the end of 2019, uh, Nate offered me a promotion to, to join the editorial team. Mm-hmm. And I uh, started that in 2020, and that's what I am now. I'm uh, an editor and a deputy site manager at Bloody Elbow. Interesting you mentioned that, that you left like a tricky sort of industry, and you you had, like a, I would say, a more positive experience than a lot of people in the MMA industry in terms of just like gaining employment, maybe because like you started out slow and ended up building to the point where you were able to have a full-time position. But we know that that is not something that um, a lot of people get to have, but it's still in it in its own right. It's a very tricky, complicated industry, right? Uh, being an MMA writer. What did you find when you made like the transition? I'm just going to drop TV. I'm just going to do this full-time uh, what did you find were the most challenging sort of sort of aspects of it? Well, the decision to do that was really helped because another thing in the TV industry is that producers are these uh, these boomer guys who are pretty like hard to work with. And I had a real peach of a producer I was working mm. for at the time who was driving me crazy. <laughs> so it was it was quite easy just to kind of burn that bridge and be like, yeah. no, I'm not working for you anymore. I'm not doing any of this. I want to mm-hmm. do something else. And you know. As far as like the, the challenges of doing the MMA writing, I've been very lucky in that I've I've just had just an amazing place to work and, and a great boss and colleagues ever since I started doing this, mm-hmm. and uh, I've always felt very supported there. And mm. everything I've wanted to do has been like, you know, Nate or someone else is like, awesome, try it, and yeah. they've helped me do that. So the biggest challenges are just general life things, right? Making up mm. for the the income drop, mm. frankly, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, maybe a bit of the the um, the world of MMA and, and writing MMA can be a little 
tedious. It can be a little demoralizing sometimes with mm. the state of a sport. Yeah. How it's run and the 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 opinions of a lot of people mm-hmm. involved and a lot of people who support the sport. Yeah. And that can be tough. But uh I try to just focus on the work. On the things I get to do and mm-hmm. uh, when I work on a re- an original piece, I you know, it gives me a lot of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. I write a, as an editor. I have a, a lot of responsibility to just fill the, the kind of news stories. Yeah. So since 2020, for the first time ever, I've been writing a lot more just random news posts, which don't give me really any kind of like enjoyment or anything. But it's it's just part of you know this is a job now, so I have to mm-hmm. like you know this is this is what I do. I just Conor McGregor said something like. Ugh weird like okay i'm gonna write 300 words on it and put it up yeah before i became an editor before i had that kind of responsibility i was a lot more uh a bigger snob (laughs) i'm I'm only writing original pieces like like i'm not gonna like write a a post where it's like oh mma junkie said this yeah i want to write an article where it's like bloody elbow confirms or like this person told bloody elbow yeah and then uh, that kind of like petered away once the realities of um, of my my workload and my job description changed to being mm-hmm. one where it's more about just you know keeping the site going and uh, and helping maintain that foundation which allows us to do uh, more yeah unusual and interesting work. That's the thing, right? Like with um, MMA media, but I think with media in general, and we're all kind of living through this moment where. You know, I personally, like, I had the brief experience, uh, like, sort of experience at The Athletic where it was kind of like, oh, we can all just do the things that we like and it's awesome and it's going to be a lot of fun and who says this isn't sustainable? And then it's like, half of us get fired. <laughs> it's like, oh, maybe, maybe it isn't sustainable. That's unfortunate. <laughs> was not planning on that one. Um, and I think that's a lot of the... You know, to me, what I see and what um, I felt when I was doing more of the daily stuff uh, with Junkie and which I know it's a possibility that I will end up going back to it because that's just the reality of the industry and of needing money to pay for things in a capitalistic society. But that it was always it ends up being very like draining and I don't know, like you said, not necessarily fulfilling to do something that is just like churning out things every day. And the way that it works, you absolutely have to because people are still going to click on whatever dumbest thing McGregor just did. So it's like, how do you even, is there really a way around it? I don't know. To me right now, being in media just feels very discouraging as a general. Like, I feel like I'm in a good place, but... Uh, I feel like it's A, an oasis, and B, like now I've learned to be sort of scared that everything could end in an instant because Mm -hmm. of just the realities of the industry. Well, for me, definitely churning out those stories I don't really care about Mm -hmm. is like not the most fun thing in the world, but Mm -hmm. the things around that, like the team I get to work with, like it sounds super cheesy, Mm -hmm. but like the friends I've made at Bloody Elba and Beyond, yeah. It's like, that's the coolest part of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And also in my position as an editor now, I get to work with a lot of younger writers mm-hmm. and help them. And uh, that's also super fulfilling. That's yeah. probably the most like satisfying thing I do is, is like helping someone who is uh, newer into this or, mm-hmm. or even just new to Bloody Elbow, helping them like figure out what they want to do here and, yeah. and uh, helping them like do that to the, to the best of their abilities, it's that's a lot of fun. And Bloody Elbow is also the number one most hated website of the assholes, the asshole MMA fans. So that's a good, good little perk. <laughs> yeah, you, you get some pretty hilarious uh, <laughs> hate emails and DMs every now and then. Oh, uh, that's amazing because it's like I feel like that's the thing. It's one of the the it's the website that people are going to refer to when they're talking about like. Oh, the liberals are ruining MMA with their sensitive takes or whatever. And at the same time, you guys have like one of the best, probably the best comment section. Like it's yeah. where most people, like people are going to be assholes wherever, like that's life. But I do feel like you're going to have a more nuanced 
uh, discussion or even like more openness to certain arguments that you might not get in other places. But you did mention you try to focus just on the work and stuff, but does it, I don't know, do the interactions, the bad interactions or maybe whatever like flack you might have gotten or that the website gets, does, does it ever, I don't know, discourage you or get to you in any way? No. No? I don't care. You're, you're just so cool. It's the coolest person. Like, uh, <laughs> it's like, I'm very like mm. happy with what I'm doing mm-hmm. and my life and everything. So yeah. what some like stranger says to me is just yeah. not going to affect me one way or the other. I mm-hmm. try and like be very, very stoic mm. and almost cold to a point when it comes to both mm. like praise and criticism. Okay. And but neither, I, I try not to really care that much about either of those things mm-hmm. and just focus on, doing what I think is good. And when it comes to writing in like a feature or a long form, it's just, I just write those for me and I'm challenging myself to like Mm -hmm. write a story, which I think is really cool. And a story, which I would go back and read. Yeah. And you know, whether someone like really praises it or not, that's nice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But that, that doesn't make it worth it to me. And Mm -hmm. if someone like slams it or bashes me for an opinion, I've expressed it too. Like also it's like, Okay, big whoop. Like, uh, <laughs> it just it doesn't bother me at all. Aspirational, aspirational. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about your your uh, some of your long form pieces, which I love. Um, I was actually rereading. Yeah, I remember I had read. Obviously, the most. Let's start with the. I was rereading the Taekwondo and Terror one. I when I started it, I remembered I had read it before, um, mm-hmm. and it's to me such such a freaking cool piece and all the while i was like how did you how does one even go about telling a story like this uh it's about two brothers for those of you who haven't read it and should because it's really freaking good but uh two brothers one who was a taekwondo athlete um is i don't know because it was a few years ago i don't know where he is now and then uh the other one who ended up uh being a terrorists who committed terrorist acts and um, died in one of those attacks in an airport in Belgium, right? If I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. That's right. So I guess, first of all, what, how did that story even come about? How did, was the process of even, you know, making, seeing the story, making the pitch and, and just approaching the whole writing process? Well, I got the idea for that one. This goes back to that whole like fear of uh, Mm. various things like, it was like around um, those years, like 2014, 15, 16, was the, the rise of like, um, what was the, the Arab Spring and then the Arab mm-hmm. Winter, which followed it. Yeah. So they were, we were inundated with news of really like ghastly things happening mm-hmm. in Syria and around there. And I was just seeing it on TV and seeing it on the internet being like, wow, this is so terrifying. Mm. I mean, like a, just the idea of being people yeah, subjected to that really affected me and being like, like... That is just so frightening to me, mm-hmm. the idea of like living under that kind of threat and danger. So it was something which I was like looking a lot of in the news and then reading a lot about. Yeah. And when I saw a story pop up where it was um, involving combat sports, in this case, uh, a taekwondo athlete and how his brother had been one of the bombers in the Brussels airport mm-hmm. attack. And I was like, wow, this there's an intersection here between combat sports and something which I'm reading up a lot about something which I find very frightening and fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if I could interview this guy and, uh, write the story. Yeah. And, uh, it just felt like a really big challenge. Mm -hmm. And that was really appealing to me Mm -hmm. to, to track down the, the brother, first of all, to try and communicate with them without speaking their language and to tell the story of, uh, with deceased brother and and how like like difficult and and I went involved and intertwined. Mm-hmm. And this is a very complicated story. His yeah. life uh, leading up to his terror attack. So it just really was something I thought would be. I don't want to say cool or fun to write because yeah. it was none of those things. Yeah. But just felt like An challenging and meaningful mm-hmm. and something I could really, you know get into a ton of research though no 
yeah, lots. Well, a lot of the work I did in TV was research, yeah. so I'm pretty, pretty used to that, mm-hmm. and it's always something I've enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So, going through and reading uh, lots of prior reports and lots of uh, like pieces on current affairs mm-hmm. and and pieces about ISIS and what was happening in the Middle East was uh, was definitely very interesting for me. Yeah, and also the story of just these brothers and my divergent paths was was just very interesting to me mm-hmm. i'm someone who has siblings and half siblings mm. and uh some of them i i don't see eye to eye with mm-hmm. so the idea of it you know just because you are blood yeah means that you are the same Isn't or it? you are destined to yeah. be similar is something i've always really taken mm-hmm. like with a taken not offense to but something i definitely don't agree with mm-hmm. so this was a story which kind of uh uh, intrigued me for that aspect as well mm-hmm. and uh and yeah it was it was a it was i guess 2017 i wrote that yeah. and it remains probably my favorite piece i've ever written and probably the closest i think i've gone to writing a piece at which is like as good as i think i can do mm-hmm. and uh yeah i'm happy with that one as a writer, I'm curious about like your pro as a, as a I'll fix as a writer who tortures herself every step of the way and is very stressed about everything. I'm curious, how are are you like just writing something like this, which has so much nuance, which involves the research, like you said, you're comfortable with, but you know that it's still like a delicate theme. It's something that you need to sort of approach have like a approach a certain way so it's not exploitative so it's not there's a balance to be had there do you uh as you were writing it as you were researching it were you stressed uh were you like did it the 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 idea of maybe not coming out exactly like you wanted it to did that stress you out or you're more of a of a focused uh writer who doesn't really think that way well during the process i'm pretty good at just being in the now yeah and like getting all my research together and just kind of going into a flow state okay. and just banging it out. Mm-hmm. But when it's time to to get published, yeah. that's when I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> You're getting nervous. I just wrote a story about terrorism, <laughs> right? like, suicide bombings, so and ISIS. <laughs> and this goes up tomorrow. Yeah. Like, did I do the right thing here? Because mm-hmm. it's not like I don't I don't care about people saying it's bad or whatever, mm-hmm. but causing harm. Yeah is something i care about yeah and uh, a few pieces i've uh, i've gone to the brink of publishing and been like mm, should i um, is there any is this harmful here whether it's about mm. a person like the idea of misrepresenting them or or just being wrong about a fact or something mm-hmm. those are the ones which i kind of get the sweats and being like oh my god i need to stay up tonight and just make sure i'm absolutely right here but when it comes to actually putting it all together yeah it like you know, this is what I like to do the most. Mm-hmm. So it's very, you know, it's very easy for me, I guess, to to just flow with uh, so many stories. Yeah. I I envy that a little. But I haven't written really, like, a lot of... This, to me, that's what I was saying. Like, you're writing a story that touches on all these difficult subjects. And I, as I was reading, I was like, oh, this is, like, the perfect choice of word. Like, this is the perfect choice. Like, because I see, like, all the traps... And I'm like, oh, this is like, no, this is this was the right thing. And of course, having a team helps. Having like mm-hmm. somebody to an editor you trust helps, uh, and all that stuff. But I was that's what really impressed me about it. Uh, yeah. You mentioned shout out to Zane Simon, your oh, he your was previous guest. My he's previous my guest. Uh, he's my editor when it comes to he edited every single long form I've done. Oh, that's awesome! I love Zane. I think it's awesome. Um, yeah. And then you mentioned. Um, other pieces that you sort of had difficulties maybe letting out into the world. You did mention that one that was difficult for you was what I believe to be your latest one, the Mitchell Paradox series. Um, yeah, the latest and maybe the last. Why maybe the... No, don't do this to the universe, Tim. Don't do this to us. Why the last? Well, the the reality of it is I have very little time right yeah, now with imagine. my responsibilities at a side to to dedicate mm-hmm. to big, huge features. Mm-hmm. And also after writing that series, which my goodness, what was it? Nine parts. I kind of, at the end of that felt like I'd said all I needed to say about mm-hmm. MMA once that was done. Okay. And I didn't know if that's something 
I needed to go back to. Okay. So I might I may write like a feature on something else, like mm-hmm. you know, a cool sumo story. That would be cool. Yeah. But as far as like a feature that is so MMA and so UFC, mm. I I don't know if I can say much more than than what I said in that uh, series. Yeah, for the those listening, it's a series about David Mitchell, a former UFC fighter who dealt with a lot that it's why it's such a long series. I can't really uh, describe it here quickly, but um, I would imagine how, how, you know, you're dealing with MMA every day. We know the realities of the sport. Um, And there are pieces to me that um, are very important because they really make you think about, very like very essential issues and uh, to me i think one the 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 examples that i always cite on this on the show are the the mitchell paradox series and the Stephen morocco piece on spencer fisher mm-hmm. because it was also it dealt uh with what i think are very difficult and dark realities of mma that are things that kind of have always been in our faces and we kind of you know, used artifices to sort of maybe not address directly over the years, but that, you know, are just very hard to ignore when they're presented in such a way, especially. And I think that's the richness of telling these stories is that you put a face and a name to it and it really changes the way you see it. You very, you humanize issues that maybe you could afford to see as just abstract, faraway concepts before. But I would imagine it takes a toll for the people who wrote the story. So what's it, why was it so difficult for you to, to really get through that one? Well, David is a fascinating character, someone whose story I ended up telling pretty much by chance. And it was basically him who said like, you know, you called me. So here it is. Mm. And I document the process of how this story came about in the first couple of parts, but basically, yeah, I'd contacted David Mitchell after a pretty hard search to find him mm-hmm. because I was writing a separate long form all about uh, Uva Moet. Yeah, hey, yeah, I remember that. And David Mitchell um, mm. had fought Paulo Paulo Chago right in Brazil. Yeah, in Rio, the um, I think it was the Anderson Silva Yushinokami card. Yeah, UFC 134, if I'm not mistaken. And he was the first non. Brazilian to fight a Brazilian on that card. Mm-hmm. And we're pretty sure that this is the first time Ubama Ware yeah. was sung at an MMA event. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's something which has been around in Brazilian mm-hmm. football arenas and stadiums for a long time. Yeah. So I tracked him down and I wanted to talk to him about that experience. And he gave me a very short and polite interview. And uh, that was it. And then he messaged me again and said, like, I have a real story for you. Mm. And that's like, very exciting mm-hmm. as a writer, but also pretty terrifying. Yes, it's absolutely the feeling of like, uh, uh, you know, a writer coming across a good story. I think that's what most of us feel like. This is yeah. great, but also uh, I don't know if if it's wise to go down that that rabbit yeah. hole. So in, in years past, I, it may have been the kind of thing where I kind of like shied away from mm-hmm. certainly in in my life yeah. prior to that, that time i was someone who would who would often say no to things okay. and and uh not take a chance yeah but i think either that year or the year before i'd made kind of a commitment to say yes more often okay and i was just like okay let's see where this goes mm-hmm. and i started talking to him and he was very emotional about how like he felt it was an interesting coincidence that someone called him out the blue to talk and he has all this to talk about mm-hmm. i don't personally believe in fate and destiny and that kind of stuff yeah, but me neither i was like sure i'm i'm a willing listener here mm-hmm. I'll, I'll listen to you and we spoke for months mm-hmm. and i got a, a transcript as long as like a novella of all of our conversations and it ended up being this mammoth series tracking his his life in mma and how uh Basically, head trauma has led to post-concussive syndrome, PTSD, aggravated his bipolar condition, probably mm. called CTE, and just led to a lot of really harmful things in his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, he like, um, seemed to, well, he said a few times that he, 
he appreciated like venting and getting this off his chest. He called it therapy a few times, even mm-hmm. though I'm not a qualified therapist. Mm-hmm. People go to therapy. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. But so it was a very long endurance. It was like a marathon article to write. So I wasn't ever really in that flow state. I was just very like long process of doing these long interviews, doing these long transcriptions and then writing these long, long pieces. Mm. So it was a real like toll Mm. mentally for that. And just emotionally after speaking to someone and hearing about the worst that can happen from MMA fights, Mm. it's hard now to like see someone get knocked out and be like, wow, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, I just spoke to a guy who told me some really horrible stuff about like the things which have come in his life. And he, he pinpoints directly to a few moments which happened in the octagon. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Like, how do you, and these are things that I'm sure you weren't unaware of. Um, like none of us are, but, uh, how, how do you go back to just watching the sport or enjoying it? Um, after, you know, hearing something like this, did that, affect your your sort of appreciation of mma in any way oh yeah my my fandom for the sport like mm. is at an all-time low mm-hmm. like uh because of uh that experience which i'm very grateful for the, the knowledge i've gained from that is something i i really treasure mm-hmm. but it does mean i can't really enjoy watching fights yeah. like like i used to or have a real eagerness or interest in like who scored the most brutal knockout of the day and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So my interest now is a lot more focused on the bigger stories outside of it. Yeah. And uh, even before I spoke to David Mitchell, I'd, I'd kind of stopped because originally I was just doing fighter interviews for Bloody Elbow. Mm-hmm. And then I got kind of sick of that. Yeah. And I decided just to, to focus on a few very specific beats, one of them being head trauma. Okay. And the other being crime, which kind of happened by accident. I just started grabbing crime stories mm-hmm. and then I became the crime guy mm-hmm. for our site. The crime guy so is I, a hell of a yeah. moniker. <laughs> so I, Tim I the crime guy. <laughs> the crime guy. I mean, yeah, my colleagues would definitely attest to that. Like that. I'll often wake up and on Slack I'm tagged and there's mm-hmm. a message about crime. an MMA fighter who did something ridiculous. Oh. And uh, that's, I'm told like that's a busy beat though in MMA. Yeah, it's a abyssal special. <laughs> I have to I have to go and do something about it. But uh, but it also I've been focusing on CTE and, mm. and head trauma and things like that prior to speaking to, to David. And uh, so it's something I was very well aware of, but it was only after you know putting a voice and a face to it yeah. that my my views were really uh, galvanized in how like. You know, so now from a personal perspective, I haven't had a chance to really write about this at length, but now I'm very much someone who observes the sport and wishes there was more protection. Yeah. Or at least wishes there was more rewards for the risk people are taking. That's absolutely kind of where I sit with it. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's like. Because consenting adults can can do. Sorry. It's fine. (laughs) But I would just. I would just love it if those consenting adults who are going to do these fights mm-hmm. just had more access to, you know, this is what could happen to your brain. Mm-hmm. Not And just a lot of the misinformation out there around brain health, yeah. which pro sports is terrible for. Mm. The idea that a concussion is what makes all these bad things happen mm-hmm. is absurd. It's, it's proven now that sub-concussive blows... can still cause CTE. Mm -hmm. So only taking like players off the pitch, whether it's soccer or American football or hockey, because they're showing signs of concussion, they're missing all the, all the hits and things which happen where, where people hit their heads, but they're not dazed, they're not losing consciousness, but still that process is beginning. It's, it's the brain has been harmed and Mm -hmm. what causes CTE is, is happening. Yeah. And, that's a really uncomfortable conversation in MMA because yeah. even in a fight where two people make it to the end, they're getting punched and kicked in the head like a number of times. And mm-hmm. every one of those blows can contribute to CTE. Yeah. That's the thing, right? Like when you think about how little it takes in a way, right? It takes a lot because yeah. we're talking about people who are uh, repeatedly subjecting uh, their their brains to that kind of thing. But at the same time, the the difference what could really cause some lifelong damage um and that's and we're seeing now a generation of fighters mm. who like 
every other week there's a former pro fighter who has gone in some trouble for something. Yeah. And I, I mean, their, their decision making has, has a part to play, but it's proven that the kind of injuries you take to your head from subconcussive and concussive blows are things which are detrimental to your decision making, your, your ability to reason. Yeah, and I think we're already seeing a lot of these guys who are who are going viral with videos for things which are happening at bars and, and things which are happening in parking lots, and you know we're seeing it. So, and I don't know if uh, we're going to stop seeing it because there's a lot of guys and girls coming out of the pipeline right now who uh, who have already taken that damage. Yeah, the sport ages, right? And it's it's interesting to me because the the conversation around it is so weird in MMA. For instance, you have a fighter who gets caught, um, who acts up or does something violent. And we, we read about it. And then like the, for all the replies are CT. And Mm -hmm. I think that's bad for several reasons. A, like you're because you, you, you just removed the conversation that I feel like needs to be had, which is yes. Uh, brain trauma can absolutely contribute to this, but you're throwing it out there in a way, it, it's in a way they, they, it's used in a way that is so banal and that doesn't really contribute to the conversation. And on the same breath, the same people are going to go and talk about how fighters don't need to have bigger, like will not support better pay because that's what they chose yeah. and they signed that contract and just chalk it up to personal responsibility. And to me, that's yeah, just um, one of the contradictions i guess of the discourse yeah, trademark the, the cte strikes again comments aren't really helpful and they mm-hmm. they are a smokescreen for like the bigger question is like why yes. is this happening and and how is the industry like set up to perpetuate this yeah. the entire fight game is built on encouraging people to risk their health mm-hmm. as much as possible to damage another person as much as possible from the way contracts are designed, from how bonuses are handed out, from how promoters will shit on someone mm-hmm. for not being "quote unquote" exciting, for not risking themselves, yeah, the- or for being like uh, not brave enough to go out on their shields. It's there's just the whole culture and the way the industry yeah. shapes that culture is responsible for uh, for the head trauma and and for what we'll see as a result of that. Yeah, and the, even the fact that the sort of base pay is low and the finish bonus or just the bonus ends up being... Because there's fight of the night, but we know what kind of fight tends to win fight of the night. Uh-huh. They are much higher than the pay that most of these people get. I feel like all of that just sort of contributes. I hate the the win money thing. I feel like it should be a base pay. Um, but you, you kind of see how all the entire structure is geared toward it. And to me, like, and that's the thing that I feel like I've, I've talked about it here and because it's like really is one of the big conflicts. I think like when you watch, um, this past Saturday, Ryan Ortega and Volkanovsky fought at UFC 266. And, uh, I read a stat today. It was a wild fight and it was again, Ortega kind of like in the, the Max Holloway fight, just taking a bunch of damage and just refusing to let go and then i read a a wild stat like he's the first person in the ufc i'll need to confirm it uh but that that was the first uh, fighter in the ufc who took more than 200 um who absorbed more than 200 significant strikes in two separate fights Mm -hmm. and i'm reading the stat and you know he comes out very lauded, very praised because he's a warrior. He's a fighter's fighter, much like Nick Diaz who fought earlier that same night. Um, and you, you look at that and how impressive, and then you look at those numbers and you're like, how, how many years have these two fights, which he ultimately didn't win, have taken off his life possibly. Yeah. And I interviewed Spencer Fisher Mm. like a few years ago and he flat out said that, he and Sam Stout, they, they took years off each other's life. In that fight. In, in, in those those incredible mm-hmm. fights, which I was like loving back with their own Spike TV, back when I was like getting into this sport. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but the reason Ortega is taking that punishment is 
the situation around him. I mean, he was probably making low six figures maybe for to show in that fight. And the idea of doubling that, if he can hang in and get a last second triangle choke or something yeah. and then get a belt and mm-hmm. get pay-per-view points, mm-hmm. the only way to like make real pro athlete money in the UFC. Mm-hmm. And this, the whole corner stoppage thing is, is kind of useless because the, the unified rules of MMA say only the referee can stop a fight. Corners can't stop fights. Although I assume if a corner told a referee to stop, yeah. it, the referee would go ahead and do that. But those, those trainers just, they see like the opportunity for their guy mm-hmm. and they're just so terrified of like taking it away from them. Yeah. And the fighter, the fighters themselves who are a special breed. Yeah. And they all believe that they can still, they win. can be like the, the most incredible, like badass fighter in the world mm-hmm. on their day. So it's very rare to see someone as smart as like Nick Diaz, someone who has always operated outside of the regular paradigms mm-hmm. of combat sports. So it's very rare to see someone be like, you know, I'm good. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't need to hang in here. It's refreshing. Yeah. But don't expect to see it very much without, you know, collective bargaining, without fighter associations, without like a fair revenue split. Like it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And it's still like a, it's such a taboo thing, right? Like you still get Nick Diaz at his, this stage of his career, he's sort of earned his badge in a way that I don't think people are going to talk too much uh, shit about that. Though probably other things, but like you see also with some fighters, there's a cultural thing, right? Like imagine, I would imagine a fighter before quitting would absolutely weigh also the repercussion beyond financial. Yeah. Just like people, how is it going to be received? Because it is a sport that rewards the toughness, the, the, the grit, uh, so much. So it's like... Well, in the UFC, how, how's it going to be received by Dana White too, Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like, how is he going to react to a person who just decided that they're, that that this wasn't worth it for themselves? So it's like, like you said, it's refreshing, but I, it's not something I expect to see a lot. And also something that I don't think should be the uh, onus that we put on the fighter. The thing... And I fall with you on that though. Like when it comes down to it and I can be like here preaching from my high horse as I make a living <laughs> off this port, like I have for several years now, but like it is consenting adults making decisions about their brains and bodies. And that's absolutely fine. Um, but then what it comes down to me is like, okay, but we need to make sure that there is a reward. If we're all like enjoying this, if we're all reaping the benefits um, of what this athlete is doing, like, and they decide that this is something that they want to do. First of all, like you said, the risk should be more uh, openly discussed. This should be a decision made with more awareness of the possible consequences and also that they should be financially rewarded for a job that ultimately is not sustainable in the long run and that can end up having serious repercussions to their future. And that's the part where I think a lot of people just miss the conversation entirely, right? Like those who maybe who don't think that these fighters, that these athletes, particularly in the UFC, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the highest stage of it, that they shouldn't be making, Oh, why? Like, this is still a lot of money, like whatever, like this is still enough of a salary. They really don't take into account that this is not, a salary that is supposed to, you know, just last month to month. This is something that should cover the sacrifices that they're making out of their own freaking futures. Like that to me is the part mm-hmm. that is so crazy that people don't really understand the sort of like dissonance. And to me, it's just so obvious. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's also just very basic, like labor rights, mm-hmm. which are, we're not getting like, mm-hmm. they have no healthcare, they have no retirement. Mm-hmm. They have no work safety plans or anything like that. Yeah. It's just a lot which is happening to these people, which you just, if there was an expose written about like workers at a steel mill. Yeah. And this was going on and they were being put in dangerous positions and, and were having to pay their own health care and, and things like that. And, and the company was ditching them as soon as they couldn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Like that'd be scandalous. Exactly. And do you, you know, you're, 
covering this, you're talking about this, like I said, you're being like head trauma, crime, like the tough stuff that not a lot of us um, uh, can or just are willing to to do on a daily basis. But do you ever sort of get, and I might am probably projecting here, but do you ever get sort of conflicted? Like, oh man, like I should be doing more of this or am I just being complicit in this sort of system? Like, is that, you know, how do you, you reconcile that with your own work? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something which comes up mm. like, uh, one of my supporting here, but I try and like, when I write my own thing, it, it's very much from a place of like, these are things I believe in. Mm-hmm. Like the, if you want to know the real me on, in my words, it's not on Conor McGregor tweeted this about Khabib <laughs> articles. Yeah. It's in the Mitchell paradox. It's yeah. in like things I write about, you know, the UFC lobbying against like uh, fair labor rights and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I can make myself feel okay about it by the effort I put into yeah. uh, presenting that. And also I believe like as a whole, uh, bloody hell, we mm-hmm. do a pretty good job. There's of, John um, S. Na- S. Nash talking about for sure. Yeah, we do we do a good job of pushing back against the power. Yes, something which I don't think a lot of sites do yeah. because and nothing against them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have different goals. Yeah, uh, the people working there have different goals and intentions. Yeah, they they want to create certain kinds of content and you know have fun. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that like that's the thing. Like so many people complain about bloody elbow or like oh, you're trying to ruin the sport or whatever. Like, you know, you have options. Yeah. You know, you can go to 10 websites to, to see what Conor McGregor tweeted, including us. Mm-hmm. Like, we do that. But, you know, we also have content if you want to talk about, like the Ali Act, if you want to learn about CTE, if you want to learn about, mm-hmm. you know, hypocrisy yeah. from the, the man in charge of the UFC and things like that. And obviously we get a lot of flack for it, but, you know, Someone's got to do it. That's a funny thing, though, whenever I see those comments. Like, oh, you're just, of course, bloody elbow again doing this. And it's like, dude, open the site. There's literally everything there. Do you want just fight coverage? There's fight coverage, too. You don't have to click on it. (laughs) Just a thought. And we're also not doing anything to say, like, everyone else should cover this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not proselytizing telling you know yeah. our competitors and or other people in this industry like you should be doing this too mm-hmm. uh, do your own thing we do our thing yeah and you know we have a little bit of a different flavor on things yeah we, we find value in in our particular like uh style yeah. and we're just gonna keep doing it do you read comments in the story no no i don't if something like really blows up every now and i'll take a glance and like our comments on bloody elbow Mm -hmm. are usually fine because our moderation is so robust and we have a great team of moderators so shout out to all of those folks there who who do a lot of work and who i put through the ringer with some of the things (laughs) i put on the site Uh, but as far as like what people say on youtube and facebook and twitter it's just whatever i don't i have no need to see that yeah and like I said, because that's the thing, I always give like, I always talk about people as a general thing. And I sometimes fear that I make it seem like every MMA fan is an asshole. And I absolutely do not think that. But when you're working in this all the time, every day, it can feel very aggressive. So that's why I mm-hmm. phrase things a certain way. But like I said, I feel like also because of the way you've positioned yourselves as an outlet, um, there's the audience uh, tends to be more receptive uh, to certain things that maybe in other places they might be less so. Mm. Mm-hmm. There, but I see a lot more people being pro uh, fighter, yeah, and anti um, management, yes, in their responses to our things, mm-hmm. which. I, I like that that's a, a trend we're going through. A few years ago, it was very much not that. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was like the UFC or, or God, Dana White is the prophet. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel that way too. Fighters are sacrifices, I guess. But this was, 
it's been nice to see like the pandemic has also made people far more extreme on the other side, I think. I agree. But I don't know if it's created more people like that. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel like we're seeing a lot more people willing to clap back against like uh, people who have really gross things to say yes. about us or about like issues regarding fighters needing more money or, or the UFC and, and Dana White um, being frankly dangerous mm-hmm. to fighters. I agree. Like far be for me to be optimistic. Like that's not a, not a personality trait I normally adopt. But I agree with you that I've been seeing, and I talked about this before here. Like I am, I like that conversations that seemed unfathomable or positions that were fringe, frankly, because it was fringe to talk about the UFC being exploitative five years ago uh, Mm. are now much more accepted. And even when there are stories about, you know, um, even stuff like sexism um, that six years ago was met with like a general scoff, I see a lot more people not only being open to hearing um, other people's perspectives, but also sort of standing up against people who are saying dumb as shit. So uh-huh. <laughs> that makes me optimistic. Uh, before I let you go, though, I wanted to talk about one another one of your pieces because it's uh, I know it's extremely popular. I had also read it before, but I was rereading it today uh, for this conversation, and it's the, on the Just Bleed guy. And yeah. I didn't remember the 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 twists and turns of that one because that was a whole journey on the just bleed guy that involves cockfighting and dogs fighting in prison uh for mm-hmm. eight years and a bunch of shit so first of all um how did you even find the just bleed guy well again that goes back to my tv background mm. i was the I was a guy who could find people. Mm. Like one of the TV shows I worked on. That sounds terrifying, though. I'm the guy who. (laughs) I have a very particular set of skills. (laughs) (laughs) Like one of the shows I worked on was a show where we found, like, like we dug up battlefields and found, like, canteens and watches and things which had, like, a name engraved or a squad number. And we would track down the family of those, um, those soldiers and reunite them with the artifact. So. Finding a guy whose name was already mentioned on, I think it was a, a Sherdog forum, and having a rough idea of where geographically it was, yeah, that was it was pretty easy just to, to contact James Ladners and be like, is this you? Is this you? And eventually hear the guy saying, yes, that's me, and I, I can talk to you about it later. That's and, awesome. Okay, cool. He was open right away to, to talking. Yeah. Yeah, he was super into it. And it was a very bizarre conversation. <laughs> was that like along several conversations or just... One. This was just one, maybe two hour long interview. Oh my God. And he told and you all of that and, in two hours? Yeah, I think so. And like right off the bat, he was like, well, I guess it all started with like cockfighting. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> we, we have a story here. This is, this is going to be a wild one. Like, let me and then I was just myself. listening. <laughs> listening to this guy with this southern accent calling me Sir. And then Mister and telling me these really brutal things from his past. Yeah. And yeah. He seems to also have a very sophisticated vocabulary. He does actually. Yeah, he was a, a very interesting character. I think uh, smart in some ways, but mm-hmm. I think you would admit that maybe not in other ways. And that was just say your most popular piece to date. Yeah, that got like a huge amount of reaction. Lots of people were sharing that and talking about it and like it's one of the only pieces i've i've had like requests to talk about on podcasts and things like that so people really dug that and you know it's the just bleed guy right it's the the most famous gif in, in mma i mean i have no desire for the was it twist his dick i'm not going to interview that guy though <laughs> one one meme article is enough <laughs> and i and it's to me, what's so fascinating about it is that he really, like, the whole story is very much MMA. Yeah. It's like the MMA-est thing that's ever happened is this guy's life trajectory. And it's kind of like a Rorschach's test, I feel like. You can really project anything you want into that. Mm-hmm. Um, last question for me. Um, after you're done with those stories that I'm sure are very time-consuming and 
uh, sometimes emotionally consuming, like the Mitchell Paradox one. Um, do you go back and read, or are you too like, yeah, just let let it be? Uh, very rarely. Yeah. Every now and then, I'll I'll kind of remember mm. a, a part of a piece. I'm like, what what did I say there? What what happened there? And I'll go back and check it out. But for the most part, once they're done, yeah, like and they're released into the wild, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, go. Go live your own life out there, kind of thing. <laughs> so you you're not the person who goes back and reads it a thousand times and then thinks of all the things you could have done differently. So you're normal. No, I don't do. It. No, once it's it's done, it's not because you kind of have to let it go. Yeah, like there's always there's always something you could have done like like better on something, but like at what point do you stop writing if you're just going to keep like going back and editing your own stuff? Yeah. You truly are an inspirational character. Like I, I one day hope I'm as chill. <laughs> as you are. Well, I'm not into astrology, but apparently I'm a Pisces. Apparently Pisces are really chill. Is that, I know, I'm not, I'm a Virgo and apparently we're the opposite of chill, even though I don't uh, believe in all yeah. that. But if I guess I'll just pin it on the, the year I was born. Cause it's more comfortable. Uh, Tim, thank you so, so much before I let you go. Is there anything Obviously, I will plug all of your long forms. Uh, they exist in a coherent, in a convenient link out there with a compilation, but I would recommend all of them. Uh, but is there anything else you want our listeners to read, watch, uh, listen to? It doesn't even have to be yours. It doesn't even have to be MMA. This is your space. Go wild. Yeah, read, read and watch stuff that isn't MMA. <laughs> Like broaden your your horizons and your interests, you know. Find find things you enjoy elsewhere. There's a, there's a lot of good art out there. Mm, that's a good good recommendation. Um, though I would not recommend the Midnight Mass on Netflix. <laughs> watch Squid Game instead. Which I have to watch still. Midnight Mass is just very boring. Uh, I did not like it at all. So that's just me being. Um, a random asshole to Michael Flanagan, who did nothing to deserve such hatred coming from me. Uh, thank you again, Tim, for being on the show. Thank you all at home for listening. Thank you, our amazing producer, Jordan, for producing and editing the show. Thank you. Which random person am I thinking today? I should have thought this one ahead of time. Who do we want to thank, Tim? Who's a person who's doing good things in the world? Mm. That's It's, it's, it's telling mm. that we have to really think about it. <laughs> No. <laughs> that we have to really stop and think uh thank you zane simon for editing those amazing pieces and for being yeah. on my show uh which yeah, makes I me can, like automatically with that one <laughs> okay uh this has been the best camp of my life i will see you all next week